Let us pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. The year was 1806, and in an obscure village in Galway in Ireland, a young man named Patrick O'Donnell was born in a poor family. Patrick grew up, and he was someone who wanted to make a splash and to be known in this world. And his dream was to be able to get out of this poor village and to be able to come to America and make his fortune. And through hard work and taking the chance when it came, he was able to come to this country when he was in his late 20s, and he ended up in Charleston, South Carolina. And as he came to Charleston, he was determined to rise to the top of the social heap in Charleston and to become one of the richest men in the city. And so he worked hard and he took advantage of every opportunity and he decided that, as is often the case in Charleston, real estate was the way to make money. So he became a real estate investor and a house builder and became known as one of the great house builders in Charleston history. And he decided that he wanted to build the finest house in all of Charleston to show the world that he had made it. And so he designed this enormous house, 10,000 square feet, which for the 1850s was really something. 10,000 square feet, and he started work on this house, and he decided that this was what he needed in order to impress this young lady of a different social class that he wanted to marry. So he invited this woman to marry him and explained about this glorious house that he was building that would finally show that he had arrived, that he had all of this world's goods, and they could eat, drink, and be merry. But unfortunately for him, he became obsessed with this house, and it took him 12 years to build it. And during that time, the woman that he loved broke off the engagement and married someone else. And when the house was finished, he lived there alone, rattling around in 10,000 square feet until the end of his days. And the house became known as O'Donnell's Folly. And you can still see it at 21 King Street today. But much like that story is the story that we see in the gospel lesson today, which is known as the parable of the rich fool. And as we look at this chapter 12 in the Gospel of Luke, I want to place this parable in context. And one of the things that is interesting about it is that Jesus is teaching about some things that are really important at the beginning of this chapter. He's teaching about caring for your soul. He's teaching about avoiding hypocrisy. He's teaching about the unforgivable sin and teaching about not being afraid to publicly own your faith. And right in the midst of this teaching, this man barges in yelling, teacher, I want you to deal with my brother and divide the inheritance properly between us. That would be like somebody walking in those back doors during St. Philip's 1030 service and yelling at me while I'm in the pulpit. It's not, not something people did. It's quite shocking. And Jesus uses it as a teachable moment to go in and to give this parable. But what is interesting, and what unfortunately we miss in the lectionary because they can't put everything in there, is what comes immediately after this parable, 
One of the great principles of biblical interpretation is that whenever you're reading the Bible and you see the word therefore, you need to ask yourself what the word therefore is there for. And so right after this parable comes the word therefore. So Jesus's point out of this parable is really expressed in what is in the gospel that we didn't read this morning. So right after this comes this part, right after rich toward God comes, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the birds of the air, they neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? What Jesus is telling us is that there is a deep linkage between relying on material success and anxiety and worry. And it is no accident that Jesus taught on the topic of money and materialism more than any other one. So this morning, as we look at this parable, I want us to consider three questions as we walk through it. The first question is, whom are you serving? Who is your life oriented around? Secondly, how do you define success? And thirdly, which kingdom are you invested in? So first of all, I'd like to try to unpack this parable a little bit so we see what's going on. So first, Jesus is teaching, as we said, and he's rudely interrupted by this man. And one of the things you can tell about the way the man interrupts is that he is utterly self-centered. He wants Jesus to stop teaching all the other people and deal with his own personal crisis that he's having right then. I want what I want, and I want it now. That is where he's coming from. And when you look in the parable that Jesus tells in response to that, you will notice that the pronouns reflect exactly the same emphasis. You see, I, 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 my, 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 my. There is no case other than the subjective right there. It is all about this man personally. And what that shows us is the lens through which he is viewing life. It is all about him. He is not interested in anyone else. And so Jesus says to him, be on guard against all kind of covetousness. Covetousness is not a word you probably use in your normal conversation. Uh, it is something we associate back with the Ten Commandments and not coveting. Uh, and it was in the lesson from Colossians today. But covetousness has with wanting more and particularly wanting things that are not your own, wanting what other people have, jealousy, all of those kinds of things. But the interesting thing here is that if you look at the word in the Greek, it not only means coveting and being jealous and zealous for material success, 
It also means grasping ambition, an ambition that defines your life of always wanting to be getting ahead. And so Jesus says that your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. And it is interesting as you look at the parable as the story unfolds, and you see Jesus making very clear that it is the land that produces plentifully. It is only because of the abundance that God has given. Where is the gratitude? It is not due just to this man's own efforts. And my friends, how often are we like that ourselves? When we work hard and are successful, we pat ourselves on the back and look for approbation from other people because we did it. We did it. We were successful. We met the challenge, and we did it. And we forget that the very breath in our lungs was given to us by God. The fact that we were born in this country and in this place and raised by parents who loved us and given an education and all of those things, none of that is because of us. It is all the gift of God's grace. And lest we become self-important, we must always be reminded that the grace of God is what makes any of these things possible. It is interesting to look at what the great Bible scholar James Montgomery Boyce says about this parable and about how Jesus phrases it. Listen to his words. Jesus did not say a certain man worked very hard and accumulated a great fortune. Jesus said, the ground of a certain man produced a good crop. Jesus undoubtedly meant that the man's prosperity was from God, who had made the ground and prospered the harvest. The man had worked hard, true, but apart from the blessing of God, he might have suffered blight or drought and thus have had no harvest at all. The rich man's blessing was from God, but he failed utterly to see that and attributed it all to himself. And you will notice in the midst of that I, 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 part of what you see is the man believes that his ultimate security is based on what's inside his barn. It's based on what he has stored there. It is based on provision for many years because of the success of his agriculture. He is not relying on God in any way. He's taken it all upon himself, and he believes that he has the ultimate security because he doesn't need to trust in God. He's been so successful, he can just do it on his own. Thank you very much. And the problem that you see that comes with this is what the goal of all this accumulating is. It's not just security. It is pleasure and hedonism. Notice what he says that when he's got all of that stored up, he will be able to say self or soul, his own soul that he calls my soul, soul, you have stored up all of these things, now relax, eat, drink, be merry. But the interesting thing is something shocking happens at that point. God speaks to this man and says, you fool. Now that is shocking because hardly ever in the scriptures, do you see God using that word fool and directing it at someone? The closest thing we have to this is in the Psalms, where the psalmist says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And so Jesus is saying right here that this man is right up there in the company with those that would deny even the existence 
of God in his foolishness. He is absolutely powerless before what God says is going to happen next because God says to him, you fool, this night your soul is required of you. And lest the man not be concerned about eternal life, God focuses on what's clearly important to the man and in my own translation basically says, and now who's going to get all that stuff anyway? All of those things this man has worked so hard to accumulate, he's going to die and none of it will go with him. He has laid up treasure for himself, but he is not rich toward God. He has ended up empty. And it is that same thing that you so often hear when some rich person dies and someone asks how much was in the estate, how much did he leave behind? And the real answer is all of it. He left all of it behind because we do not go into the afterlife with God or without God clinging to our possessions. So this brings us to the three questions that I want us to look at. Whom are you serving? How do you define success? And which kingdom are you investing in? The first thing, whom are you serving? We've noted the pronouns in this parable, this man who is so selfish, and it's so easy to look at that and say, oh, I would never be like that. I would never be so selfish. And the fact of the matter is, yes, we probably would. We are surrounded by the most selfish culture in the history of the world. Clinically diagnosed narcissism is higher than it's ever been. And we live in a culture that is saturated with media messages saying, have it your way. Uh, you deserve a break today. And then that good old Frank Sinatra song, I did it my way. We all think that we deserve to have it be the way we want it to be. And if anyone gets in our way, then we can blame them and we can walk over them to get what we want when we want it. But the fact of the matter is, if you are a Christian, you are called to a very different way of understanding what it means to serve and whom you are called to serve. Every Sunday in our liturgy, we hear what Jesus said was the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And what you will notice from those is that they are demanding commandments. All your heart, soul, mind, and strength is to be directed toward loving God, not toward loving yourself. And it is to be directed toward loving your neighbor. Christianity is a profoundly other-centered faith. It is not all about us. But the problem for this man in the parable is he is only about serving himself and getting more for himself. It is a radical kind of selfishness, but it is a radical selfishness that is born of the same lie back then in Jesus's time that so many of us believe today. And that is the lie that we are fed over and over again, that if we get enough stuff, eventually that will lead us to be able to be independent, and that independence will lead us to be finally happy. Well, that leads to the second question of how do you define success? And I would submit to you that our culture defines success in exactly the same way that this man in the parable did. We define success by money, job, social status, and 
when you talk about someone who is a success, that is what we mean. We mean somebody who has made it big in the eyes of the world, or maybe even somebody who is an Instagram influencer. These are things that people look up to and think, oh, if I could only be like that, if I only had those things, if I only had that, then, then I would be happy. And the, the lie that the culture feeds us is that if we get enough stuff, if we have enough money, then finally we will be free. We will have complete freedom, and that will lead to happiness. But the sad thing is that's not true. And our culture is very bald-faced about saying this is what we want. I am reminded of one of my favorite songs to dance to that has absolutely terrible words uh, that are from the Beatles in the early 1960s. Listen to these words. The best things in life are free, but you can keep them for the birds and bees. Now give me money. That's what I want. That's what I want. Your loving gives me a thrill, but your loving don't pay my bills. Now give me money. That's what I want. Money don't get everything, it's true, but what it don't get, I can't use. Give me money now. That's what I want. Now give me money, a whole lot of money. Oh yeah, I want to be free. Give me a whole lot of money. Well, that's pretty clear. He's not beating around the bush. He wants the money because that is what is going to make him a success and make him happy. And in case that wasn't enough, remember the great theologian and philosopher Janis Joplin, oh Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? My friends all drive Porsches, I must make amends. Worked hard all my lifetime, no help from my friends. Oh Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? Now, let me hasten to add, there's nothing sinful about a Mercedes Benz. However, if that is the goal of your life, if you think you've worked hard and you deserve a Mercedes-Benz that God should open the heavens and drop into your driveway, there is a problem with your worldview. And for so many of us, our definition of success, even as Christians, has let this notion from the Beatles and Janis Joplin in our culture, and really from Satan, we have let that lie come in and influence us. The problem is that it's not true, that if you get the Mercedes-Benz in your driveway, if you get all that money, it doesn't make you happy. Jim Carrey, the great comedian and film star, put this so beautifully, and Justin just quoted this last week, but it's so relevant. Jim Carrey said this, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it is not the answer. And we are surrounded by the carnage of this worldview when we look at people that have made it, made it in the eyes of the world, who are rich and famous and yet are miserable, suffering from loneliness and drug addiction and taking their own lives because they find that there is no meaning and purpose in all these things, just as we see way back in the book of Ecclesiastes. It is all vanity. But part of the problem in our culture today about defining success is this misdefinition starts way back in elementary school, or maybe even in preschool if you live somewhere like New York City, where you think you've got to get into the right school. 
because if you get into the right preschool and then the right school, then you can get into the right college and then you can do well in that right college so you can get a great job where you can make lots of money and when you make lots of money in that job, you will be free and then you will be happy. But the problem with that, again, is it's not true. And it is such a sea change about what education has traditionally meant. Up until the middle of the 20th century, people understood education to be about what does it mean to lead a life of meaning and purpose, to leave the world a better place than you found it, and for Christians to live a life that is in service to Jesus Christ. But unfortunately, that has been supplanted by this overemphasis on money. If you look at surveys of entering college freshmen, that's their top goal to get into the job that pays them the most money so they'll be happy. But the problem is it's a lie. And it shows us how far things have changed. Uh, back in the 1940s, C.S. Lewis was asked what advice he would give to a newly minted graduate of Oxford University who had done well and had the world at his doorstep. And what would he advise about jobs and career and the future? And what Lewis said was this, if I had to give a piece of advice to such a young man about a job and a place to live, I think I should say, sacrifice almost everything to live where you can be near your friends. Think about how different that is from where we are now. We feel that it is an inexorable necessity that if you're offered a great job somewhere else, far from family and church and friends, but it pays more, of course you should take it. Our calculus is fundamentally wrong. John Stone Street, who is a commentator on Breakpoint, uh, which is a podcast of the Colson Center I would recommend to you, puts it this way. The illusion of control is a mid to late 20th century development. Do you, as a Christian, actually trust that following Christ is going to be life-giving? Or do you follow the world's view? When you untether from a designer and the way things ought to be and embrace the cultural mantra that autonomy equals happiness, you will experience profound anxiety when all the directions you can go None of them leads to happiness. Autonomy, that is doing whatever you want when you want to do it, doesn't actually make sense when you live in a world with a design and a purpose. Because living against that design, choosing against what is best, because God has designed a world where there is a better and a best, that results only in continual frustration and anxiety. This wrong definition of success also leads to a major problem that we see in this parable. It is this postponing of joy and fulfillment that always comes later. We're in this season where I've got to work hard right now. I've got to do all these hours. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. Because if I climb far enough up the ladder, then I will be at a place where I can relax and pay attention to my family and the church and my friends and be happy. But the problem is that presumes on the future. Tomorrow is not promised. None of us knows how long we will have on this earth. And choosing to postpone joy, to postpone what God calls us to, is fundamentally dangerous. Which brings us to the third question. Which kingdom 
are you invested in? Notice at the end of this parable, Jesus tells us that we are to be rich toward God. And what we have to decide, perhaps the most fundamental question of life, other than believing in Jesus Christ, is which kingdom are we investing in? The kingdom of this world or the kingdom of God? The kingdom of this world is very clear about its beliefs. It believes that you are your own creator. There is no purpose, there is no design for your life, and meaning is grounded only in the identity and the activities that you choose. The great, doc, uh, great atheist apologist Richard Dawkins is probably the best spokesman for this point of view. And listen to the honest answer he gives about this. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. If there is no God, human life has about as much meaning and only as much value as a colony of termites or a pile of rocks. My friends, that is a view that many people in our culture embrace, and it is no wonder that that leads to despair. Contrast that view of the kingdom of this world only with the view of the kingdom of God. In that world, you believe that God is your creator, that he created you as an outpouring of his own affection in order that he might love you, that he created you so that you bear his image, you have gifts and meaning and purpose in his kingdom, and he invites you into his fellowship, that eternal fellowship in the Trinity, that fellowship of love of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that when we come into Christ, we are caught up into that. And he invites us into that fellowship of joy and tells us that we will dwell there with him forever. The Westminster Shorter Confession gets it exactly right when they say, what is the chief end or the purpose of man? That it is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We are designed for joy, and instead we trade that for anxiety and worry and storing up things in bigger barns. Now, it's not that money is bad. Money and possessions are a gift from the Lord, but the problem is when we begin to love them. Scripture says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It doesn't say that money itself is the root, it is the love of money. And when we get that wrong and we start loving money, we get into this whole frame of mind that it's all about me. Again, quoting from James Montgomery Boyce, the true solution to this issue does not lie in the accumulation or the renunciation of wealth. It lies in the proper use and the proper estimate of the things that God has provided to us, riches, wealth, money. We are not called to relinquish all things, but instead to use them, to steward them under God's direction as not being our own, but for the health and well-being of our families, for material aid to others, for promoting God's truth and the work of God's people. We are to be rich toward God. So I'd like you to think just a minute what have you ever learned about what you should do if you want to be rich? 
And I would suggest there are a couple of things you've probably learned. One is that you should start early, that you should invest, that you should work hard, that you should be strategic, that you should think hard about what you're investing in, and that you should use the gifts and talents that you were given to try to optimize your return. And the problem is that those are, that's a pretty good answer, but we apply all of that to the wrong sphere. We apply that to temporal things rather than to spiritual things. And I would like to suggest to you that if we start early, are careful about what we invest in, use all of our energy in it, and we're pointing that in the, to the kingdom of God, wonderful things will happen. The selection that we had from Colossians today is a great list of things that you can do to be rich toward God. But the most important thing is that we need to change and ask God to change the orientation of our hearts, to change from this love of the world and all that's in it to love of the kingdom of God so that we are invested in worship, we're invested in the word of God, we're invested in fellowship with God's people, we're invested in serving those who are less fortunate, we are invested in prayer, we are invested in giving to God's work because in those things we will find joy and the freedom that we so long for. The great Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle in the 19th century put his finger right on this in talking about this parable. He said this, when can it be said of a man that he is rich toward God? Never until he is rich in grace, rich in faith, rich in good works. Never until he is applied to Jesus Christ and bought from him gold refined in the fire. Never until he has an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. A man is truly rich when he has his name written in the book of life and is an heir of God and co-heir with Christ. Such a man is truly rich. His treasure is incorruptible. His bank can never collapse. His inheritance will never fade away. No one can deprive him of it. Death cannot snatch it out of his hands. All things are his already. The world, life, death, the present, the future. And best of all, what he has now is nothing compared to what he will have afterwards. Riches like these are within the reach of every sinner who will only come to Christ on bended knee and receive them. My friends, there is deep truth there. And in the midst of this anxious and discontented culture, we need to follow what St. Paul admonished us to do, which is to learn the secret of being content in every circumstance. Contentment is not something that we achieve by working and working and working and working. It is an achievement that comes by getting a right understanding of these three questions we've talked about this morning. Whom are you serving? What is your definition of success? Which kingdom are you investing in? Because as Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. My friends, let us pray that we will all choose to be rich toward God. Amen.